Do you remember the old farmhouse of our ancestors on a mountain ridge which dated back to the 12th century? Well, my grandmother as a young girl managed to destroy it and her father too. They produced electricity using a generator. However, because the machine had accidentally been left outside, it had been filled with uh, rainwater, which turned into a block of solid ice when temperatures dropped far below zero. So it was decided to put it in a shed and make a fire under it to thaw it up. My grandmother, a young girl then, was asked, was tasked to guard it during the night. She fell asleep. The shed and the house went up in flames. Her father tried to rescue things from the house. He died from smoke inhalation. So, 800 years surviving God knows what and then being killed by a modern machine. Darwinists call that the survival of the fittest. Now the family fell apart. My grandmother married a butcher from the town of Nesselwang. I saw a picture of the guy. He stands there, dapper, cool, in his German World War I uniform. Obviously quite pleased with himself. Cross-country champion broke his leg on a high mountain in deep snow, skis down on one leg, owns the only motorbike in town, falls with it, gets run over by a car which drags him along under, under it because the driver insists on his hit and run. Grandmother has two really be beautiful daughters and a new husband, Sonner of whom his relatives at the wedding say, are we glad to be rid of him? Both beauties, my mother Sita and her sister Trudy, get raped by him. He also fathers the child Heinze with a maid and obviously assumes I'm his child too. He is very fond of me, but beats Heinze relentlessly. Grandmother had adopted him. As he is a butcher too, he has no problems with hacking my best friend, the Rottweiler Falco, into several pieces of which the greatest survived for, survived for some time. Only because the women forgot to pay the dog tax. He also has his own daughter, who is as nuts as her father. She got two kids, both crazy, who commit suicide later on. He has a lover later on who is able to stop his womanizing and whom he marries. But enough of this sad story. It has at least one good outcome. Because crazy, crazy monster Sonner was nice to me, I have no fear of human monsters or crazy people. I People might shake and tremble, but I just walk up to them, put, pat them on their back and say, How are you doing, buddy? I know that monsters are dangerous, all the more if you fear them. I sort of have my finger on a mental submachine gun.
I look at them friendly, but somehow they sense that I could fire without the slightest hesitation. So Christine and I drove to Yugoslavia often to get to Greece. However, we did not race, even though I felt keenly that this place was extremely dangerous. Tito was still alive then. He kept his finger on the pressure cooker. You could also say that he deeply froze all the hatred. But what do you expect? The Turks had been there for centuries and been extremely cruel. And that created hatred which simmered under the surface. In the beginning we looked for hotels. Later we slept in our VW station wagon which we had turned each evening into a comfortable sleeper. Felt blinds on the windows attached with magnets. Baggage used to support a detached back seat. On all of that a foam mattress and sheets, blankets and cushion. Really low tech, low cost. In the late afternoon we started to look for a place where we could stay. For example, we drive up to a farmer and ask him whether we could stay on his farm during the night. He, moje moje, but not at the haystacks. You might burn them with your camping stove. So here we are in the middle of Montenegro on a high plateau, the high mountains of northern Albania before us. The communist, leader, uh, the communist leader of Yugoslavia, Marshal Tito, was still alive, as was his enemy in Albania, Stalinist dictator Enver Hoxha, who had closed off his country completely. First he had broken with his friend Tito, then with Khrushchev of the Soviet Union, at last with the followers of Mao in China. All three countries had been in Albania, had been friends with Sarja until at a certain point he had thrown them out. Hoxha admired Stalin. As soon as his friends stopped away, uh, stopped following in Stalin's footsteps, the critical point was reached. Out with you, religionists! One thing I have to say though, the Albanian border which we visited later on near Greece at Lake Ohrid was the most impressive border which I had ever seen. Why? Because it was so unimpressive. So listen, we drive west in southern Yugoslavia past the Yugoslavian border guard who looks at us and sneers from face to face and just waves us on without even checking us. The road, which is divided by a median, is completely empty. Finally, we reach the Albanian border. Our side, the road, goes down um, into the ground and ends at the cement wall. So we go on to the left side of very slowly because we did not want to give the impression that we wanted to run through the barrier. We get out of the car and walk up to it. And here is our side. There is a simple house on the left. On our front right is a patch of grass, 
on which a woman sits knitting. Beside her is a young man in an old uniform and a belt, which might have seen World War II. He stands there leisurely with a banged-up AK-47 on his shoulder. The only thing missing was that he was missing a tune. The door off to the house opens and out comes someone who looks like a bus driver. A plain uniform, no insignia, no medals. He smiles very friendly and greets us in German. Because he is German, is somewhat limited, we go to Italian, then Greek, then Zubskorwatsky, and English and all of that in a very friendly way, talking about God knows what. Finally, we ask him whether we could come in without a visa. With many excuses, he says no. So we drive back, past the grinning Yugo border guard and head towards Greece. So, back to Montenegro, where we had been earlier. We sit there by our camping table. Sausages, bread, bacon and stinky cheese on it. Water for tea boiling on the stove. The night is dark and cold. The condensation of the ice on the grass is close to freezing. Out of the dark come three figures with heavy long coats, but barefoot. Young shepherds of goats and sheep. We offer them bread and sausage, which they eat, but they refuse the stinky cheese, laugh and pinch their noses. Then they leave, we go into car and sleep. In the morning we slip naked into our white American army rubber ponchos and wash our bodies. After dressing, the shepherds show up again with the farmer, who grimaces and holds his cheek. We find out he has a bad tooth, but do not understand what we could do. We finally get our toolbox out of the car and offer them the tools for extraction. They shake their heads violently and burst into loud laughter. After they calm down, I ask them, Tableta? Now they nod and nod. We throw a pain reliever into a glass of water, one of those which buzz around for quite some time before they dissolve. The farmer drinks it immediately, and now the thing buzzes around in his mouth, which makes him grimace. So we all laugh for a while and leave each other. We go back into our car, play to their sheep and goats. And Christine and I think, these are very nice people. Where does all the violence come from? Okay, now to another topic. In 1982, I had corresponded with Anna Freud for 20 years. Also talked to her on on war, or also talked to her or to Paula Fichtel on the phone. I had begun with her book on psychoanalysis for teachers when I was 17. Then I began to study her father's work. I was totally fascinated. Finally, some knowledge 
of a meaningful kind, not like dry geography or physics. This knowledge could help people to know themselves and become less crazy. When I read Freud, I had a feeling that I never had again with other psychologists. It was as if a very close blood relative had written these books, A Kindred Spirit. I was impatiently waiting at the city library of Bochum for a new volume to appear. In that spirit I wrote Anna Freud, who was in London. She immediately wrote back. I had no ulterior motives. I was just a con it was just a connection shared. Love of the same man, her father. We exchanged not only talks about psychoanalysis, but also other things. I sent her pictures of my childhood village and its surroundings. She wrote back that she had become really envious. It must have been so beautiful to grow up there. I had to content myself with walks in boring Viennese parks. I sent her some of my artwork. She answered that she had found a good place for it in on the ball. I also once sent her a photograph of my wife Christine. I had animated Christine on a hike to walk in front of me with her pants down. I don't think that Anna Freud had ever received such a picture before. Anna really became my friend, so far forward. During the first half of 1982, I called London. Paula Fichtel, a Viennese maid who had come with Anna and Sigmund to London in 1939, was on the phone. She told me with sobs in her Viennese German. Miss Freud was in the kitchen with me this morning. She complained about a strong headache and then collapsed. She's in the hospital right now. Probably a stroke, they say. I asked Paula about the address and wrote, and, and wrote it down. I immediately went to the flower shop and sent there a huge bunch of carnations. I think Anna had said before that uh, carnations were her favorites. I immediately got an answer back with a phrase she had used many times before. You should save your money for psychoanalytic training. I thought that I should see her finally in person. We had been in remote contact for so long. I hand had hand-painted my old VW station wagon and then, and then drove to France from Le Havre on a hovercraft to Dover, England. From Dover I called Anna, but I only reached a doctor who rejected any visits without even asking Anna. I called again after two or three weeks in Eng England. I will tell you what happened during those two weeks after I finished my story with Anna Freud. It's another interesting story connected with a real person who shows up in the American movie 
British spies. So after two or three weeks in Cornwall, I call London again. Now Paula Fichtel is on the phone. Where are you, Herr Kreuz? I'm in England to see Miss Floyd, but the doctor refused. Paula, I will ask her right away. She comes back after a while and says, Can you come tomorrow afternoon at around five? She wants to see you. I go to a souvenir shop and buy a beautiful statuette entitled The Vanquished Knight, of which you see a partial picture beside. On its back I write, Property of... And then my name and address. Below I add, Lent to Miss Anna Freud, and then the date of tomorrow. I wanted the night back and did not want it to be placed in a future Freud museum. But I also wanted it to stay with Anna as long as she was alive. So we drive to London and we go to the neighborhood where she lived. This was a neighborhood I have never seen before. Jews everywhere, scalp blocks, Hebrew writing at some uh, places. I felt intimidated. What happens if they find out I'm German? I asked them where Anna Freud's address is and someone describes how to get there. We find the house. Christine wants to stay in the car. I go up to the door and ring. Paula opens. I hug her. We go through the hall in which a chow chow barks at me like crazy. We go into the garden. Anna Freud sits in a reclining chair and they smile at each other. I notice that one of one side of her face does not respond. I become concerned and say, You tell me immediately when I should leave. She waves it off and says, You will notice, I have no doubt. What we talked about I don't remember. Before we had corresponded about combining psychoanalysis with other approaches, for example behaviorism. She had reservations. Psychoanalysis and behaviorism are too different. I have thrown my side of the cor correspondence away, so I cannot check. I think what uh, I said to her was this. Do you know who made the following statement? The reflex is the basis of all psychological functioning. She answers, probably someone, someone from the school of Pavlov. I grin and say, no, it was Sigmund Freud, volume two on dreams. She starts laughing. Now I pull out my vanquished knight and ask her what the word vanquished meant. She explains it to me and then, However, the night does not look vanquished, and you don't either. When I tell her that the night would stay with her, she opens her mouth, and since I know exactly what she was going to say, I say together with her, you should share your, uh, save your money for psychoanalytic training. She and I laugh. Then I turn the night around and point to the label on the back. I knew that you would say this. That's why I wrote my address on the back and also that I 
I just borrowed it to you. So, but this guy is staying here to watch over you. Then we say goodbye. October comes and she dies. Months go by and no night comes back. The Floyd house was being turned into a museum to which I file a complaint. Then comes back a pack then comes a package with a broken night and uh, a letter which said the night was on Miss Floyd's bedside table. It fell off for no particular reason. It's been the only thing that broke from the estate. I glued the guy and put it under a large portrait of Anna in my private practice in Germany. One day someone comes in and looks at it and asks, why did you put a portrait of your wife in your treatment room? Now it is my turn to be surprised. I had never noticed that Christine looked really like the Anna of her age in the picture. I certainly had not selected Christine because of the similarity. End of episode 4